Here we are now with episode number 17 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. In the 1950s, there was a senator in America by the name of Joseph McCarthy. And this senator grew concerns for a growing ideology, a growing group of people. And he felt that this group of people were coming to take over the American government. And these people were the communists. And they were living in a far distant land, very different to the land of the Americas. And Senator McCarthy, well, he felt that these communists were going to infiltrate the American government by sending spies, by sending fake people to come and apply for the jobs within the government. And not only that, but these communists were also going to take over the culture of America. They were going to sneak into the, the movie-making business and the advertising business and the music business and the entertainment industry. And they were going to influence the people of America until everyone would be overrun and overtaken by communism and then America would have its constitution and its democracy fall and would eventually become a communist country. And Senator McCarthy, well, what he did was he suspected who would fit the profile of who could be this person, who would fit the idea, the the characteristics of a secret communist who's pretending to be an American, a patriotic, dedicated American. And he came up with a list. He had a list of names and he put them forward to the Senate. And, well, there was an investigation. And a whole department came up. A whole department opened up. And all sorts of processes began to unwind and tangle because, of course, once you are accused of something, well, then the doubt is in your image. It's in your public image. And this means that, well, it's up to you to prove that you're not a communist. And the strange thing is, well, the more and more you try to prove something that you're not, Actually, the more difficult it is, because it looks like more and more that you're just struggling. You're just struggling. Look how hard this person is struggling to prove they're not a communist. Which proves, well, that must mean they're a communist. And there were convictions. And when someone gets convicted, they can say, well, now that you've Come out with the truth of what you are. Is there anyone else? And if you're honest, then your penalty won't be so harsh. If you tell the truth about who else is a communist, who is an accomplice with your secret plot to overtake America, then your sentence might be reduced. And so those who were found guilty then started to say, no, no, this person's a communist. No, no, this person is also a communist. And then there was another inquiry. There were more investigations. There were more trials. And on it went. Now, Around this time, in the 1950s, around the time this Senator McCarthy was doing his work to rid America of communism, 
a playwright who was involved in this, how should we say, point in time in history in place, was also involved and accused, and he decided to write a play about it. Now, as it happened, you weren't allowed to say anything bad about the American government at that time, because that would prove you're a communist. So this playwright, by the name of Arthur Miller, wrote a play which was somewhat a fable in many ways. I don't, I don't know if it class is classified technically as a fable, but it acted as a fable where it was in time, which meant that it was a story about the American government, but it wasn't really about the American government. It, 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 on the surface, it looked like it was about something else, but it was actually really about the American government. So it's sort of both ways, if you can wrap your head around that. It's about it, but not really about it, but it's not really about it, but it is actually about it. And what Arthur Miller actually wrote about was witches. He wrote about the witch trials that happened hundreds of years ago, long before Senator McCarthy was doing his political rounds. And Arthur Miller, well, I mean, it works as a play, it works as a story, and the story is that, well, there's a church and there's a small town, and then someone comes along and says, you're a witch to someone. And they accuse them of saying, you are a witch. And that person says, no, no, I'm not a witch. And the more and more accusations get thrown about, then, well, the more and more they try to resist. And then they say, well, obviously you're resisting very hard because you are a witch. And then you go to trial and there's an investigation and there's a hearing and there's a, a punishment. And the witches that are found guilty are then said, Now, who else is a witch? Who else do you say was your accomplice? And if you tell us who, your sentence might be reduced. And of course, there's a lot of dynamics between the characters because there are, for some, an incentive for them to call someone a witch. There's a character in the Crucible called Abigail Williams. And she had been, well, originally she was just a housemaid. She wasn't really someone of much power. Not really someone that notable in the town. And she had, supposedly, a secret love affair with someone and then was fired from her job as a maid for that. And somehow she got round to getting the brilliant idea of accusing people of being a witch, of witchcraft. And she found that the more she did this, the more atten attention she got and the more people feared her. And there was also a judge that wanted to give stern rulings, so it was in his favour to be giving out these trials. Because these trials, well, they generated a lot of interest. There was a lot of hysteria. There was a lot of, oh, what's going on? And the judge became the man at the middle of that, at the centre of that. When you're at the centre of the hysteria, well, you control the people. And there was also a pastor that you know, he, he originally thought, you know, people don't really listen to me very often. I don't really get paid enough. And then this hysteria comes along and he finds, well, he's got quite an important role to play because he's part of the inquiry, being the holy man, trying to understand who is practicing witchcraft. And, well, this play, well, it's a parallel between getting the communists out of America by accusing people of being a communist and getting the witches out of the local town. And actually now the term 
McCarthyism refers to accusing someone with no evidence or for a political gain or to incite hysteria, to incite unrest. So if someone accuses you of someone, ah, you stole my cupcake. You can just say, no, this is just McCarthyism. Unless, of course, you really did steal the cupcake, which in which case you would want to say this is McCarthyism because that would be a great defense. But then they would realize that it's not a real defense, but then they would start to doubt and then you might get away with it if you just stick with it. And then you obviously know more than them, so you have more power than them and then it will get out of control, but it won't be out of control because you started the whole thing and you know that it's a fake thing, but then you're not sure if it will be in control because other people are starting to... And on it goes. And how easily and how quickly we can get into that slope. So the two terms to to remember, one is McCarthyism and the other is the play, the cruciable. It really is a, a classic English literature text. You've probably studied it in school if you're in a Western school. And here, well, with all this in mind, we see the brilliancy of J.K. Rowling. Because Harry and his friends, well, they break into the Ministry of Magic by becoming these... They use this magic potion that makes them look like other people. And what they see is a trial happening. And this is, well, this has been going on for quite a few novels. We just haven't mentioned much about it. It's the theme of, are you a pure blood? Are you really a wizard? Are you really a witch? And we see this, the theme, uh, what is it? We see the scene where Ron walks in, disguised as someone else, and his wife is there on trial. And his wife is saying, but I am a witch. I am a witch. And this is a complete reversal of, well, the crucible, where they're all saying, no, I'm not a witch. No, I'm not a witch. So it's very clever how the same thing has been illustrated, the same idea of McCarthyism has been illustrated in this reversal, in this novel. And it goes even further into our modern day, because today we have, well, you're not a communist, we don't say that anymore. Now it's sort of moved on to, are you a terrorist? Are you a terrorist? You look like a terrorist. You could be a terrorist. Keep the terrorists out. You never know who might be a terrorist. They might just be pretending to be an American when really they're a a terrorist. And maybe more broadly in the social sphere or the, what do we call, I really need to know the word of what you call online monkey chatter, like chattering, gossiping. What do you call that? I don't know. Like the Twitter sphere. People just bickering on Twitter. I don't know. I mean, when I think of like the original word of Twitter, or tweeting, I think of birds, and that's quite a nice sound. But I imagine, <laughs> I imagine what's happening on Twitter is not not very pleasant to listen to, which is why I stay out of it. But whatever the word for all that is, in that sphere, we have the cry of, "You're a what do we say? Bigot." You're a racist. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. You're a racist. You're a racist. You're a racist. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. See, he's denying it. That proves it. Someone who really wasn't a racist wouldn't even say that. Okay, well, then I'll stop saying that. Well, what do you have to say in your defense? Nothing to say in your defense. You have no defense against this accusation that you are a racist. 
And this is just McCarthyism in another form. So there's another funny interaction that occurs while Harry and his friends are running around the Ministry of Magic disguised as other people. And, well, one of them is where Ron <laughs> Ron kisses his wife. And at that moment, he turns back into Ron and they're mid-kiss. <laughs> it's very funny. And he sort of... It's sort of funny because he actually ends up feeling something like, Oh, dear, my, my wife, I'm so worried about you. He starts to actually love his wife and... Well, he's also he's also helping her to get out of that trial. There's also a bit of action there where they they grab the what is it the locket that they're after. They grab the locket and then there's a big breakthrough and there's a whole bunch of action. But more subtly in the novel, and I'll see if I can get this right. Ron is in the lift with his father, but Ron is disguised as a co-worker and Ron has information about the inquiry that the ministry is doing into its staff which includes Ron's father which will help Ron's father which will help his father so in a nutshell he's been Ron's been running around the ministry and then he's found out that they're going to do an inquiry into Mr Weasley and so he's trying to say, hey, dad, you better watch out. Someone's, you know, he tries to tip him off. He tries to give him this information. But because he's in the, the body of this other co-worker, it comes off as a, like a, what, like a threat. And they're in the, in the lift. And he sort of says, you, bet, you better watch out for... You know, this so-and-so, because this might happen. And Weasley sort of, Weasley's dad, Weasley Sr., turns to him and sort of said, is that a threat or why are you saying it? It's sort of a snarling thing. And it's so funny because there we see a world of difference between what someone's saying and what they intend and how it's being taken and how it's seen on the other side because we're right inside the world of Ron. We know what's going on. And then we see on the other side, well, he's not getting it. And well, that's because of the appearance. That's because of the relationship that these characters have. This Weasley senior and this work colleague. So information is never so simple. It's never so back and forth between two people. And it's beautifully illustrated here. So Harry and his friends, well, they break out again and go back into hiding after their adventure to the Ministry of Magic. And they're successful. They capture the locket, the Horcrux, but they then have to work out, well, how are they going to kill it? And time goes on the weeks go on and they end up camping in different spots and moving to different spots and they're basically just staying in these hidden places and staying out of trouble and then really just talking and taking turns taking watch and they're getting a bit worn down they're getting a bit like Ron's feeling like he's tired of camping and they know they have to take care of each other. They know they have to be good for each other. And, you know, they keep asking, like, why can't we just make some food? And Hermione says, well, that's one of the laws of magic or one of the laws of the universe that you can't make food out of nothing. And so it's a real drag. It almost feels like they're, they're what do we say, like regressed even worse than where they are. So not are they not only not making progress, but even their basic livelihood of food and water and shelter is becoming more and more difficult. And they start to even argue over this. And Harry's sort of like, at one point he says, what, well, what do you expect? Did you expect five-star hotels and enjoying finding a Horcrux every day? 
This is what it takes to go on the hero's journey. It's a real downer of a time. And there's another sort of reference in here, which is slipped in very in a very sneaky way by J.K. Rowling. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that this is a slip because of the order in which the narrative unfolds in this particular section. So you can check this out. This is on page 288 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Around that area, what happens is they find some mushrooms, some wild mushrooms, and they stew them in a billy can. And this, you know what this could mean if you listen to the episode number nine where we were talking about Harry confronting Lord Voldemort and what that experience was like. So if you remember what we were talking there, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, episode nine of this series. And here, well, something similar is happening because they eat some wild mushrooms and what follows is a long, detailed, in-depth description of Harry's interior world. And we don't know if he's dreaming or if it's a vision or if he's leaving the body and going in in spirit to different places but he's seeing all these things and all his issues about how is he going to find a Horcrux and what does the wand situation mean and what is Voldemort thinking and does he know that there's a connection between them and is he trying to use it? All these things start swirling around and coming up and bubbling over and there are visions of some Wizards Harry's never met before. Some of them are in a different time, different place, in places he's never been before. And that sounds like, very much like something. Sounds like there was something a bit special about these mushrooms. Dare I make the connection again. And have a read. Have a read at the descriptions of Harry's interior progress in that passage and well what do you think how does it compare is it really too much of a stretch and the friends keep on fighting they keep on arguing they keep on getting tired with each other they keep on bickering and they really do become hopeless and fed up with each other and we as readers become more and more frustrated because we say, no, you have to be friends. No, you have to get along. Don't you realize you need to be helping each other? And well, this happens when you're in a close space with people for a long time, like in camping or on a holiday with your family. Like family is one of those funny things where you, you sort of know you should be friends and you should get along, but you just don't. <laughs> Is that too much of a a blunt truth? You know you're always going to be there and you know you should respect each other and be nice to each other, but I just don't like it. I just don't want to. And they reach the point in the story where they feel it's hopeless and it's pointless. There are no leads. And they also have this painting which they keep talking to for information, but that's not getting them anywhere because it's a talking painting, it's one of the magic paintings. And there's also sort of this cutaway thing of, well, there's a painting of Dumbledore in his office. So would you want to talk to that painting? And what could that painting say? And Harry sort of thinks that through, like, what? There's so much that I don't know about Dumbledore, he says. There's so much that I didn't understand. There's so much that I feel he should be able to answer for me. And yet still, he doesn't want to talk to the painting. And at this stage, well, they're trying to keep in hiding. So it's very much uh, too risky for them. And when things get really tough, well, you quit. You give up. 
you really just say, I've had enough of this, and you pack it in, and you leave your friends. And that's what Ron does. He leaves his friends. And the other side of this, to make it even worse, to make it even more complicated, is that Ron is getting the sneaky suspicion that there might be a romantic interest between Harry and Hermione. Wow, I thought we were all friends. I thought we were all in this together. I see how you two talk to each other. I see what's going on there. I see how close you are. And when you get romance involved into a friendship, well, things become very intense very quickly. And Ron, well, he's suffering from, you'll never be as good as the great Harry Potter. You'll never be as famous as the great Harry Potter. That's an inferiority complex. There's a jealousy there. There's a sadness, there's a feeling left out, a feeling alone. When you feel left out and alone and you're still in close proximity with your friends, well, that just accentuates how alone you are. To be with friends and yet to feel alone, that's the worst kind of loneliness. That's the worst kind of isolation. And, well, Ron has enough, and he packs it in, and he says, I'm out of here. See you later. And, well, Harry and Hermione have to go on together. And some weeks go past, and time passes, and they keep travelling, and Harry decides, well... He wants to go visit his parents' graves. And Hermione says, well, that's a terrible idea. And they know it's a terrible idea because there'll be someone watching there, someone spying to see if they will turn up. And it is quite a romantic scene. There is something... And I mean I mean romantic in the terms... in terms of poetic rather than romantic in terms of romance and it's funny how those two often blur they often are not so easy to distinguish and well as harry and hermione are now alone well that's that's what's happening and they're in a graveyard together reading the tombstones And there is something very poetic about there, about them being there. And Harry reads on the gravestone of the Dumbledores that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's a powerful reminder. It's a statement that doesn't need any interpretation. It's a statement that doesn't need any explanation. And Harry goes over to his parents' graves. And on it is... Well, something that ties into the final step of his journey. The very depth, the very climax of the hero's journey, which Harry is on. And he begins to, in only a faint way, understand what that entails when he reads this quote on his parents' grave, which is this. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death.
And then a big snake comes out and attacks Harry and his wand breaks and they run out and get out in the nick of time. And some more time passes and Ron and Harry meet up again and they kill the Horcrux because they come across the sword, the goblin sword. And, well, Ron is very sad and very... Un, uh, very forget uh, what do we say apologetic for leaving his friends and he says the moment he left he wanted to come back and he tells them a beautiful story of how they found them with the following the light and Hermione's very upset but also very pleased and says oh you'll never leave us again and it's quite a nice reunion it's quite a powerful lesson it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a lesson that is learnt by actually going through it. It's one thing to say, I'll never leave a friend. It's another to say, oh, I'll never leave a friend because I have done that before. And we can't put it down to simple emotions. We can't say there's a simple description of that, which is, oh, oh he was just guilty. Ron just felt guilty. No, it's not a matter of guilt. It's a matter of a whole array of mental processes and his identity and his feelings and all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that draw someone to a friendship and to a loyalty in their friendship. And the three of them, well, it's sort of like, great, we killed a Horcrux, but now we have more to do. We have to keep finding more and we need more leads. So they keep racking their brains. They keep thinking things through. What can we do? What's the next step? And well, one of the stories or one of the ideas they have is to go visit their friend Luna Lovejoy's place and ask her father about this certain symbol which Harry had noticed at Dumbledore's Dumbledore's, what do you call it? Funeral, after after funeral, memoriam, wake. And this is because, well, Hermione is reading the children's book that Dumbledore had given her in his will. And in it was this symbol. So they thought, well, let's go ask him. And they turn up and he seems a little bit off. He seems a little bit more strange than usual and Luna isn't home, or at least that's the story. I suspect straight away that maybe there's something something going on. And they sit down to make tea. They have some tea. And, well, they ask Luna. They ask Lovejoy Senior about the story. And he tells them the children's story of the Deathly Hollows. And I can't remember if this is in the book that Dumbledore gave Hermione or not. It might not have been, but I can't remember. But the point is that here what we're finding is a story within stories. And the book that Hermione has is multiple children's stories. And remember that this is very important. This is, this is the third major time we've had this prop come up of the book. Now remember when there's a an author writing about a book, we need to pay extra attention. The diary in the Chamber of Secrets, the textbook of the Half-Blood Prince, and now a children's book which is being read to us or interpreted by the sort of weird one of the wizarding world, the eccentric one, the one that's a little bit cuckoo. And, well, what, what happens? What is happening here? Some people say that it's just a children's story. And, in fact, well, Ron was sort of brought up on this as a children's story. It's just a children's story. And yet others, like Lovejoy Sr., 
feel that there's actually a deep truth behind it and they believe in it and there's a significance to it and so on. And well, what are we exactly doing right here? What is Harry Potter? It's a children's book. The very thing that we're doing is the very thing that's happening in this story, in these characters. We're reading a children's book and we're saying, well, do you believe? And the question, well, the interesting discussion is, well, believe what? Believe that it's true? Yes, but in what way? In what way is it true? Is it just metaphorical? Is it just philosophical? Is it just clever cross-literary references that we're doing here? Is it just cultural statements? Well, that's the whole conversation. And the Deathly Hallows, well, it's the Eldar Wand, the Stone of Resurrection, and the Invisibility Cloak. And the person who has all three of these, well, they, they master death, basically, in a nutshell. And Hermione has sort of this this thing with love good. Wait, love joy or love good? I think I've been saying the name wrong. Anyway, you know who it is. Luna's dad. Luna's dad and Hermione have this thing of, like, Hermione's not buying it. She's saying, are you sure? This is just a kid's story. This isn't real. Prove it. Where's your proof? And he says, well, it's not. Pr- prove that it's not. Don't prove it. Prove that it's not. And she's like, well, you claim that anything's real if the only basis for believing in it is that nobody's proved that it doesn't exist. And Lovegood sort of turns and said, well, glad to see that you're opening your mind. So here we have, they're both sort of open-minded in many ways, but very differently. Hermione's still showing a different sense of, well, well, she's, it's almost like in this scene she's gone back to the rationalist paradigm. It's like the scientist in her is coming out. The logic in her is coming out. And in this case, well, Lovegood is the mystical one, the more transcendent one, the more intangible one. And then what follows is, well, once Harry gets, well, look look at what's happening. So the, the friends are sitting around hearing this story. And then as Harry hears it and he gets it and he starts to have more and more of it fit together, he, he fits it in with what he thinks about what's going on in the world. So your friends, picture this, your friends are sitting around doing what? talking about how the world is. What, what, what is going on here? What is happening in this world? What is life? And it might not be as deep as, well, what is life? It might be only, well, how do we kill the bad guy? <laughs> but then a story comes along and we say, oh, new information. How does this fit in with what we know? And Harry has this big, long explanation. Now this fits. This means that this fits with my vision of the wand. He's after the wand. And this fits with, well, the resurrection stone and what was happening here. And this fits with all this and all that and all this. And it's this big, long, complex, intellectual, wow, Harry's got this brilliant thing of how the story of the Deathly Hallows fits in perfectly with all that he knows and all that he's trying to do, and he's just like, wow, now I know what I'm doing. I need to be off on this way. And what happens? Well, Hermione turns around and she says, no, you're wrong. You're just fitting the story to fit your own ideas. Just because it fits for you doesn't mean it fits with how things actually are. There's a reality out there. Don't you realize? But Harry's not convinced, and this is a difference. This is an argument between Hermione and Harry. And remember, of the two of them, Hermione's the more intelligent. She's the one with the bigger intellect. She's got more knowledge, more book smart more information in the terms of, well, how is the world? 
And of course, on the other side, we can say, well, there's more to our world perspective than just knowledge, than just words from books. And Harry does have an interior world, partly, which Hermione is not privy to because he's had these visions. He's had these dreams. So an ambush comes along and they get attacked and they narrowly escape and they get out of there. And then once they're Harry and his friends have narrowly escaped, well, they get caught. And there's a lot of action involved in that. And Hermione does this tricky thing where she puts a spell on Harry's face so he can't be recognized. It's hard to recognize him right before they get caught. And, well, then the bad guys take them into the Malfroy's house which has turned into a bit of a bad guy den. A bit of a headquarters for the Voldemort followers. And they're all sort of gloating about, oh, look who we caught. Could this be Harry Potter? But because he's got this spell on his face, which makes him unrecognizable, they're not sure. They don't want to say, they don't want to tell the Dark Lord, oh, we've caught him when they haven't, and so on. So they just keep them locked up. And where they're locked up, well, they see Luna Lovegood. And there's also a... There's also Griphook, the the goblin. And also, I think... Is this where Ollivander is? Yeah, I think so as well. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of them all locked up. And one of the... Props, which is the sword, triggers something in one of the Death Eaters, Bellatrix, one of the really evil ones, Helena Basha Cohen. Because she says, well, how did you get this? This should be in my vault. I own this. And it's very funny that, well, there's a lot of people that say they own this sword, Ministry of Magic or the Goblins or Harry Potter and his friends or now you, everyone owns it. (laughs) But because of this information, they figure out that, well, she might be hiding some other things. And this means that, well, Harry and his friends decide to, next step, as soon as they bust out of there, go in and raid the Bellatrix vault in Gringotts but before that happens I'm rushing off a bit before that happens there is this scene this moment where Harry Potter is brought to Draco Malfoy because he's got this spell on his face which means that he can't be identified his mum sort of drags him there and says look at him is this him is this Potter and there's this thing in Malfoy which is he, he sort of looks and it's not exactly clear does he know or does he not know but we start to wonder we start to see and Harry starts to suspect that actually he did know it was Harry Potter but he didn't hand them in he didn't say yes that's him and that's a change in Malfoy Jr that's a change in how he sees things and how they're going on. And that's him starting to take steps in a different direction. So that's an interesting turn. And then, well, what happens? How do they get out of this sticky situation? Well, they're stuck. The Death Eaters have got them. A Dark Lord might come and do something to Harry. But who turns up? None other than Dobby the house elf. That bloody annoying house elf that is always trying to save Harry and yet just getting him into trouble turns up. Harry, Dobby was such an annoying thing to have around. 
He caused him so much trouble. He almost got expelled because of Dobby and the things that he was doing. He was stopping his mail. He closed the portal. He did a bludger. He's, it's all these things that he just messed up Harry's life a couple of years ago. And ta-da, abracadabra, here he is as a free elf. And that's important because if you're not a free elf, well, you can't do the things that Dobby can do. And elves, well, they have their own magic. They have their own power. And Dobby is so powerful that he's able to grab the whole bunch of them, the whole lot of them, Harry and his friends and the Wandmaker and the Goblin and Luna Lovegood. Grab them all and they apparate, they disappear, they make their escape. But not before Bellatrix is able to throw a knife just at Dobby, which then goes into the portal which they escape from. And then sadly enough, kills Dobby. So, the free elf does an incredible thing in saving Harry Potter's life, saving his friends at the cost of his own. And it is very sad. It's a tragic scene. And Harry goes into a lot of grief, a lot of pain. And yet at the same time, Harry is learning about pain. He's learning about grief. And they find themselves, well, they find themselves at a beach house, which is a safe house sort of hideaway. And there are some older Weasley relatives there. And for the time being, everyone is able to just rest and have some space and Ron can get over his discomfort with camping and actually there was one more thing in that scene I wanted to add which was back at the house of the Death Eaters where they escaped from and that was that Padfoot was there Pettigrew who is Voldemort's servant, who actually did the potion to bring Voldemort back to life. And he'd been sent down to get the prisoners, but then there'd been this confrontation, there'd been this big fight, and the hand, this is in the book but not in the film, the hand that Voldemort had given Pettigrew turned on him. It sort of goes crazy. And it sort of sneaks up and out of control, finds itself around his neck, and then kills him. So the very thing that was a reward from the dark side turned out to be the thing that killed Padfoot. Wait, is it? No, it's not Padfoot. It's, it's Pettigrew. But Padfoot is the other one. Anyway, I really should touch up on my Harry Potter trivia but the the poetic justice there is that if you help the bad side even if they reward you that reward will will get you yeah to just re- correct also the terms the words it's peter pettigrew he's the servant of lord voldemort and Padfoot was the nickname for Sirius Black, Harry's godfather. So <laughs> it's pretty important not to mix those two up. Don't mix those two up. Very different characters. <laughs> so where are we up to next? Well, in this house, there's some funny dynamics because... Harry talks to the wand maker, Ollivander, and Ollivander gives him some information. He tells him about the Eldar wand and 
there's a bit of a history there. And Harry sort of doesn't like him. There's always something that he didn't really like about Ollivander. And there's this moment which brings out Harry's resolve again, which is when Ollivander is saying, why are you running around? This is just Dumbledore giving you things to do which are impossible to do and these outlandish plans are impossible to achieve and it's all just a big mess and you should just hide and forget the whole thing. And Harry says, well, it doesn't matter about Dumbledore anymore. I'm doing this. This has to be done. And it's yet another expression of his resolve. And it's a bit awkward living in this house because the Harry and his friends want to sort of keep some secrecy from everyone and they don't want to be fully trusting. And one of the characters is this goblin. And the goblin sort of takes a bit of a strange... He has a strange eye for Harry because he notices that he was respectful to Dobby when he died and that he was quite good friends with Dobby and that, well, when Dobby died, Harry dug the grave and he held a bit of a ceremony. And furthermore, well, this goblin has now been saved by this elf, which is a very strange occurrence. And so the goblin is quite confused. And furthermore, well, Harry Potter and his friends have got this sword, which is meant to be the goblin sword. And there's also the goblin sword. And there's also this thing of the goblin. It, it, it comes out that the goblin knows that the sword, the original one, is the real one that they've got. They've got the real one. And yet the one that uh, the death uh, Bellatrix had in her vault, well, that was a fake, and it was such a good fake that only the only a goblin would be able to tell. So it's vital that this character, the goblin, has turned up. And, well, they strike a deal, Harry and this goblin, to break into Bellatrix's vault, which they wouldn't be able to do without a goblin. So basically they say, look, we'll give you this sword if you help us break into this vault. And it's a bit of a can we trust this person kind of scenario when both sides know they can't trust each other because Harry and his friends realize they need that sword to destroy the Horcruxes. They actually need it. And so, in an untrusting way, but in a sort of desperate want to get something for themselves, each side, the goblin on one side and Harry and his friends on the other, sort of have these compromises. And they're all these working out the technicalities and the how they're going to do it and what process and what should be done, what time of day should they done. This is something they want to sort of, they have to do, like they have to collaborate with this goblin. But also they realize the more they collaborate, the more information they're giving to him and the more control over the situation he has. And it's quite a tense unfolding of the plot of how they, well, they actually impersonate Bellatrix and they have the invisibility cloak and there are certain spells they do. And I don't know, I, I'd like to know this, which is when they go to do this, there's this thing of the controlling curse. And Harry uses the controlling curse, which is the unforgivable curse or one of the unforgivable curses in order to carry out and carry off this heist, this bank heist. And it seems out of character. It seems like it doesn't fit. And I wonder if it's only in the movies and not in the book. It might be a nuance in there because Harry, he has used bad spells before. But he's starting to learn 
the real difference between good and evil and power and how those three things interact with each other. And the power of someone over another person through the means of an unforgivable curse, well, it doesn't seem like it fits with where Harry is at in his development, in his journey. It seems like he wouldn't want to be taking those sort of shortcuts. So, I don't know, a hardcore Harry Potter fan can tell me. That can be a, that can be like a, a super... A super nuance, a very fine, subtle nuance of the difference between the book and the movies. (laughs) I don't have time. Let's just move on. And as we move on, what we find is they get into the vault. And then there's another beautiful, beautiful poetic statement by J.K. Rowling. Which is that... You can go into this vault, but you can't touch anything. Because if you touch something, it will multiply. And Harry and his friends go in and they're very careful. And they're looking for this special thing. And then, well, someone bumps something. And it starts to multiply. And then they bump another and it multiplies again. And then just when they think they've found it, they bump and bump and the whole thing becomes churning up and up. And actually this scene is more intense in the book because not only does it multiply all this treasure and these magic artifacts and these coins and this jewelry, all this stuff, not only does it multiply... But it actually heats up and it becomes hot. And Harry and his friends are starting to get burnt. And just at the last minute, always at the last minute, they grab the Horcrux and come bursting out of this vault. And all this treasure is burning and crushing them. It's a very intense scene, a very intense moment. And, well, the poetic statement... It's quite obvious, isn't it? The more you put into money, the more it multiplies. Multiply your money. Multiply your wealth. If it multiplies too much, then, well, it'll crush you. It'll burn you. And, well, it won't be the real thing. It'll just be fake replicas. That's another component to this. So this this scene actually features, I believe, on the front of one of the books, one of the publications. I don't know if it's on every edition, but it's a very powerful scene. And, well, how do they get out of this situation? Because Griphook, he manages to take the sword, and they go past, and then, well, they're down in the dungeons, and Griphook sort of says, You know, terms and conditions. We got you in, but we won't get you out. This sort of thing. And then he nicks off and he's out of there. And then Harry and his friends are in the dungeons with the alarm raised because the treasure's been broken open and the dragon's there. And now the dragon's been set loose on them. What another sticky situation. Another, poof, how are we going to get out of this sort of moment? And, well, Hermione's idea is jump on the back of the dragon. (laughs) Talk about action. And they do so. They jump on and free the dragon, shoot the spell to unchain it. And we get the sense that there's a a connection there because Hermione, she says, on the way in, when they're going past the dragon... She says, oh, that's, that's so barbaric that you could keep something locked up in a dungeon and torture. They basically tortured the dragon so that it can be a, a guard for the gold. And Hermione says, oh, that's so bad. You know, that's such, such a barbaric thing to do. And it's so funny now. Well, she's sort of freeing the dragon in a sense. And we, we, we wonder, did the dragon know that she'd cast the spell that had freed it, 
and was therefore allowing her friends and her to ride on the back up through the dungeon and it's a it's a epic scene it's a magnificent scene when it just bursts out of the bank and all the goblins and all the customers are going oh my goodness there's a dragon in the bank talk about talk about like the the conservative world of the banker meets just the just, just magic there's nothing more magical than a dragon there's nothing more magnificent than a dragon just bursting free. Then you compare that to, well, back at the very first novel, Harry's first day, he went to Gringotts. That was one of the first things he did, was to get some of his own cash out that his parents had left him. And in the, on that day, well, Hagrid had said, you know, there's no place safer than Gringotts. There's no way to break into Gringotts. It's impossible to break in. And the goblins had sort of looked down at him and frowned at him and been very serious and said, does Mr. Potter have his key? This sort of thing. And now, look where we are. Harry and his friends on the back of a dragon with having successfully stolen something from a vault, smashing through the front doors and the dragon climbs out and flies up onto the rooftops and then struggles over. It's probably a pretty sick dragon. It probably has, has been a while since it's had a good fly. It probably did need to be released, actually. Probably a good idea to release this dragon. And Harry and his friends, well, they're on the back, and time goes on, and then, well, they start to wonder if this dragon gets hungry. It might start to think, Oh, I can eat some humans right now. And they fly, they figure out that it's flying over a lake, so they decide to jump and they go into the water. And, well, then they're back to where they are. Hiding, trying to work out how to destroy the Horcrux, and so on. Just in the nick of the time, they got out of that one. So... Very action-based, very highly action-packed scene. And a very heart-pumping turn of the narrative. So, now, I think we'll finish up. The next thing Harry and his friends do is they decide to go to Hogwarts. And I think we'll save that for the last episode, which will be coming up right after this. The big finish is yet to come. So, before then, right now, what we can do is just sit quietly for a few minutes with our eyes closed. And that's all I have to say for now.